Brian Hogan is going to be our speaker for the the weekend. Um, just we'd have been able to talk a couple times. He came today when we had the open house for the green space. He came with missiological eyes looking at it. I mean, he's done church planning. You go into a culture, you examine it, and you try to figure out how can I connect the gospel with these people. And so he was even giving us looking at our space missiologically and was sharing some stuff. But served in uh, ministry what night? Eighty. 89? 80 years. 80 years. 80 years in ministry. Boy, Doesn't I he look, look good, great? Though. He looks good. <laughs> no, <but laughs> 80 something. 32. 32. Yeah. Yeah. And worked with Navajo Indians, then was in Mongolia during church planning, doing uh, a lot with perspectives in helping people to gain a heart for the nations, working with church planning groups, training them on the front end before mm-hmm. they get there so they can do well. You can probably tell us a lot more, but we're really glad to have you with us this weekend. Well, thank you. Thanks. It's uh, really fun to be here. So, um, yeah, I am, uh, we got such an incredible gift from the Lord. And when he called us to the ends of the earth, he called us into an, is this how I'm going to do it? Okay. <laughs> he called us into an incredible story, a story that he'd been anticipating and writing from the foundations of the universe and because we said yes, no other qualifications than that, we got to be a part of it. And since then, I've gotten to tell the story of what God did. So we're going to be um, hearing a bit of that story tonight. Um, the setting is about as far away from Emporia, Kansas as you can get in many ways. It's really uh, far off and exotic. It's Mongolia. And it really is. It's like a synonym for the ends of the earth. Um, so Mongolia... Is, oh, I thought I had a quote there. In Habakkuk uh, uh, chapter 5, or chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm about to do something in your day that you wouldn't believe even if I told you in advance. And Louise and I and our family got to live through a modern day fulfillment of that prophecy to Habakkuk. God did things, even though we were expecting a lot. We were agreeing with William Carey where he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. We weren't expecting the merest little sliver of what God intended to do in Mongolia. And we were like overtaken by the events as God began to move there. Our family uh, moved to Mongolia. This was actually taken a couple years after we had gone there. Our children were seven, four, and just under two. We got on an airplane and flew out from Vancouver, Washington, or Seattle actually, to Mongolia. My wife and children had never been out of the United States. We just packed our bags, we were going long term. We had one-way tickets. By the way, I found out you don't want one-way tickets when you're going to another country. It's one of the things they ask you. Do you have a way to leave? Because they don't want you to stay there. It's like what we're going through as a country right now, right? You know, somebody says, I've got one-way tickets. They're like, oh, no, no, you're not coming in. So uh, that was a mistake. But anyway, God did miracles and got us into the country. Um, We had met a young Swedish couple named Magnus and Maria Alphonse, and their call was just like ours. We had all received in separate places this call to plant churches like Jesus and Paul planted churches, to plant small, reproducing churches that met in homes face-to-face and that could rapidly reproduce themselves into daughter, granddaughter, great-granddaughter churches. 
And so we all had this common calling when we met. It's like everything they said, everything we said just matched perfectly. And God had called them to the city of Mongolia called Erdenet. Erdenet's uh, the third largest city of Mongolia, 70,000 people. At this time, zero believers in Jesus, not one. And that was pretty standard for all of Mongolia. Mongolia had opened up to the outside world in the beginning of 1990, and there were no believers in the country. The first three men were led to Christ by a friend of mine. And um, eventually, a couple churches were started in the capital city. But when we went there, even though there were 40 missionaries who'd come into the country and were living in the capital city, they were all living in the same building, by the way. Uh, the government had kind of forced everybody into a building called Building 19 in a district called Sansar, which means outer space. So all of the missionaries were living in outer space. And we're like, no, we're not gonna live there. I'll stay in a hotel rather than live with a bunch of Americans and Europeans in outer space. That isn't why I've come to the field. So um, we've, we were the first family to get into an all-Mongolian building and get out of that district. Um, but our target was not Ulaanbaatar because God had spoken to all four of us that he didn't want us to build on somebody else's foundation. And where the church was already planted, where his son's name was already going forth, even though it was very few people at that time amongst the whole population, he wanted us to go somewhere where his son had never even been named, and that was Erdnet. Erdnet is the um, Mongolian word for treasure or precious. And this city, nestled in the hills there, uh, was God, this was where God was intending to pour out his precious treasure the Holy Spirit, and it was gonna spread from this place to the rest of Mongolia, to the other tribes of the Mongols, and to nations beyond. And he spoke these words to us, and as we shared them with other missionaries, they were like, yeah, no. Nothing is going to start in Erdenet. It's so far in the sticks, you have to import your sticks from other places. <laughs> this is, no, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, Erdenet. That's the kind of feedback we got. But we just held to what God had spoken to us. Um, we started out with 14 teenage girls who gave their lives to Jesus in response to some public evangelism, some short-term trips from the capital city uh, done by Mongolians and our partners, Magnus and Maria. And these 14 teenage girls were so keen to follow Jesus, so keen to become his disciples that they were just begging to be baptized. And... <laughs> We didn't really want to because we had been trained that you don't want to start off with teenage girls. It wasn't anything against them at all. The idea was is if you could reach the head of the household, everybody else would come along quite happily. They wouldn't be persecuted or anything. The family wouldn't turn against them. But if you reach, you know, young teenagers still under their parents' tutelage and everything, it could really disrupt the family order and everything. So we really wanted a church that looked like Mongolia, all kinds of people, and we wanted to reach heads of households. They just weren't responding. And these girls are like, won't you teach me how to obey Jesus? I want to be his disciple. And try and say no to that when oh, the Great Commission is ringing in your ears, you know, go and make disciples. Yeah, but Jesus, they're not coming in the right order. So... We just started with what God gave us, and these 14 teenage girls were baptized on January 18th of 1993, and with that, the church in Erdnet was born. By the way, this is a monument that overlooks the city, and it was uh, two hands of friendship, Nerem Dal Druzhba, Russian-Mongolian friendship, holding up a gear that meant industrial 
you know, cooperation. But we saw it as two hands crowning King Jesus over the city of Erdnet, and it became the logo of the church, the logo of the Mongolian mission sending agency. Uh, it's been used in so many ways for the body since then. Well, we gathered these girls into three house churches initially, and they did everything you do in church on Sunday, but they just did it small, face-to-face, in living rooms of apartments. And, we, and they had just been baptized, and they began to learn how to obey the Lord Jesus Christ from day one. We taught them the commands of Christ, and I'll, I'll go over these tomorrow. If you're in church tomorrow, we'll cover these briefly. But you know these commands, and when you hear them, you'll know what they are. We just kept it very simple because Jesus said, make disciples by teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And it turns out it's really simple what Jesus wanted us to do. So we taught these things and these girls grew very rapidly in their faith and they started winning their friends to Christ. Uh, We did not see this coming. We kind of thought we'd have to model evangelism and kind of push them and say, why don't you share the gospel? Never had to tell a Mongolian to share the gospel. They were gossiping the gospel all over town and we were thinking, this is going a bit too fast. You know, people were swarming in, we were forming new groups, and the church grew in one year to 120 baptized believers. Now, almost all of them were teenage girls because these girls shared the gospel with their friends, and that's who their friends were. And so we did kind of get off on the wrong foot in that one regard. We had really an incredible half a youth group. Um, <laughs> but they were sincere, they were real followers of Jesus, and they were transforming their neighborhoods by just simply obeying him, by finding ways to live lives of generosity, just radical. They were poor and they found ways to be generous. They loved the unlovable and people noticed. It was incredible. It's incredible how if you actually just obey Jesus, people notice because it's shocking and it's countercultural no matter where you live. We were living in the capital city during that first year of the church's life and making trips out to work with Magnus and Marie on the weekends and visit them, and um, we were learning the language. We learned language on the streets, you know, just going out and talking to people a lot. I talked to 50 people every day to learn Mongolian. That's I just practiced my little script. I didn't speak much, but I used it a lot. And uh, so my language grew, and we moved to Erdnet exactly a year after we entered the country of Mongolia. In um, February 1994, we moved out to Erdnet. We had just found that we were expecting a child, and it was not high on my wife's list of things to accomplish in life, to have a baby in a city that was like at the end of the train line in one of the most remote countries on earth. She just was like, God, why would I do this here? Now, she'd had our other babies at home, but that was in California, and this was a little scary, but God... um, reassured her out on a walk one day. He spoke to her and said, you can do this. You can have this baby in Erdnet. So we were excited that our family was going to be growing. But at the same time, we were praying like crazy that the church would grow beyond this kind of subculture of teenage girls that we were getting. We really, now we had teenage boys come around. Okay, they were strangely attracted to our congregation. (laughs) But it wasn't in a good way somehow. (laughs) and they wouldn't stay, and you'd meet them later on the streets, and you'd go, oh, Batar, we miss you. Why don't you come back around? And they go, come on, it's for girls. Go, it's not for girls. Why do you say that? Well, there's only girls there. No, I'm there. You're a foreigner. Well, but, I mean, Jesus is a boy. He's a foreigner, too, and it's really hard to argue, you know, and all they see is girls following Jesus, so we were 
begging God as a team. We were begging him, Lord, help us break out of this. What is that? We were trying things. It wasn't like we weren't trying anything or we were just passively hoping that grown-ups would come and young guys would come. But we didn't know what was going to work. And what happened was God showed up in Erdenet. We had a group of young Russian girls come to town and ask if they could do their outreach from Bible school in our city, and they asked our permission. They had been told to work under our authority. We were the long-termers. So we said, yeah, what do you do? And they said, we have faith and we pray. And they went out, we sent them out with a translator, and they went out into the poor barrio, the suburbs, uh, where people lived in tents, and they started praying for sick people. A lame woman who'd been lame for 10 years from a spinal injury got up and not only walked, but started dancing. Turned out she was a countrywide famous dancer. Had been on television and everything before her injury. And um, then her husband, they prayed for her husband, his hearing was instantly restored. He was deaf and he could hear. Uh, they, they were dragged down the street by this growing throng who were just amazed at what was happening to pray for the town mute. The, the one guy who was like famous throughout the whole city of Erdnet because he'd never spoken from birth. He was 21 years old, had never spoken a word, and they prayed for him, and he began to praise God. And people went bananas, and they were all demanding to know who's doing this. And the translator's like, it's Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus has done this. Because they knew Russians didn't heal anybody. They had watched Russians for 70 years, and nobody got healed. So they knew it was God, and it was signs and wonders that turned the corner in Erdnet because the older people were not going to get tricked by some new foreigners, some new group of foreigners coming in and telling a tale, spinning some words, which for all they knew, that's what we were doing. They had already been tricked with Marx and Lenin and communism. And they were like, yeah, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not gonna be fooled again. You know? And so when God showed up himself, and began to touch people in the community. Demons began to be kicked out. All sorts of things began to happen. We had a flood of signs and wonders. People just started giving their lives to Jesus. And our church overnight had all ages. We were the only church in the country with anything above the age of 20. All the other churches were youth groups as well. Now they had teenage boys, so we were hugely envious of them. But uh, we, we had started out with girls and that's all we had. Overnight we had everything. This guy, um, Domden Surin here, he led 24 people to Christ his first evening as a believer. 24! He showed up the next day and said, they're all new believers, what do I do with them? I was like, oh my God. Um, well, now you're, a, you're a, a church, you know, a house church leader. He goes, oh, okay. And I go, no, it's not okay. Your house church is too big. We only let them get to 12. Yours is twice as big as it should be. He goes, what do you do? I said, well, normally, I didn't want to bum him out, so I said, normally you'd have been walking with Jesus for a few weeks before this happened, and you'd um, have a disciple, and you could give half the church to him. He's like, oh, I taught my next-door neighbor how to win people to Jesus last night. Does he count? And I think, does he count? Back home, we'd make him an elder. I mean, <laughs> boom, you let someone to Christ, you're on the staff, you know? So, <laughs> I just, it was so amazing. Um, we had new believers coming out of the woodwork. It, it, was, it was such a time of outpouring. People called it, it got published in international sources, and people called it the Erdnet Revival. People were coming from all over the world. We had a girl raised from the dead. 
And so people, we had people from Tasmania, from Canada, from Scandinavia, from South Africa, I mean, everywhere coming and visiting and wanting to see the AirNet revival. I used to tease them and say, oh, well, I'm sorry, we don't have one. I go, what do you mean? And they'd start telling me everything they heard. I go, oh, that, that's not revival. That's just vival, it's never happened here before. <laughs> and they never found it as funny as I did, but anyway. You have to take your humor where you can get it when you're living in Mongolia. So um, one of the things that we were really excited about wasn't growth in numbers at all, but was something that had never been seen in Mongolia. And that was we decided not to introduce any translated worship songs. There were tons of the same kind of songs we just sang a few minutes ago, which are wonderful. I love them, you know. I, we were from the Vineyard Christian Fellowship. A lot of the songs that were being translated into Mongolian were written by our pastor in California. I love this music, but it just killed my heart to hear Mongolians singing it because God had not waited 2,000 years to hear Mongolians sing California praise choruses. They had their own music. They had their own voice. They had their own style and sound. And God wanted that praise to be pouring forth from Mongolian lips. And we couldn't write those songs, so all we could do was not introduce any of the translated songs, of which there were hundreds by this point. And we were so remote in AirNet that our believers couldn't learn anything except through us. So they'd beg us to teach them new songs, and we'd say, no, write them yourself. Well, I don't know how to write Christian songs. Come on. And go, yes, you do. Well, how? Well, just, you know, just write songs. You're a Christian now, so they'll be Christian songs. Write songs to Jesus. And they resisted for a while, but then they began to write songs because they just got desperate. And it was wonderful. It was the most beautiful thing. And the worship became indigenous. Now, it was young people writing these songs. So it was what I'd call Mongolian pop right? It was like what you'd hear on the radio. It wasn't ancient songs from the countryside any more than you'd expect a youth movement that popped up here in Emporia to be singing Old Susanna or, you know, My Old Kentucky Home, right? That's stuff from history or When the Saints Go Marching In. So it was, it was modern. It was now. It was like more like Justin Bieber's Oh Baby Baby, but with Jesus added on the end. Kind of a Christmas song, you know? Oh Baby Baby Jesus. Uh, so it was awesome. And the worship just got more and more indigenous. It's like permission had been given in Erdnet and was the only church in the country that was singing Mongolian music and praising God that way. And it spread from there. As others heard it, they made some cassette tapes and those got passed around. And as other churches heard it, they started, they had songwriters too who felt like they didn't have permission, that their music wasn't good enough for God. And when they heard us doing it in Erdnet, all these songs began being written all over the country. It's the most beautiful thing. It's one of the things I'm still, to this day, most excited about. Um, and they even brought in their traditional instruments and everything. So we didn't have to push any of this. Once they kind of saw the direction, they took it and ran with it. Same thing with baptism. Guess how many people we baptized in Mongolia? The whole time we were there, we baptized 14 people. 14 teenage girls. They baptized their disciples, and their disciples baptized their disciples. It wasn't unusual to see somebody wringing wet who had just stood up out of the bathtub, step out, we'd wrap a towel around them, and they'd baptize the next two people in line because they'd won those people to Jesus while they were waiting to be baptized. And we were like, it's like fishing, you know? You catch them, you clean them. It's not my business to baptize your disciples. And so they were able to obey Jesus. That's a command of Jesus. You don't need four years of seminary to dunk somebody underwater. 
Okay, it's really one of the most simple things. I had it figured out at the age of seven in the Glendale, California Municipal Swimming Pool. It's not difficult. <laughs> so um, this continued, and this outpouring that started in April of 1994, we called it Miracle April. Some people called it the Air Net Revival. Uh, just continued March, uh, April, May, June, July, August, September. It continued throughout the rest of 1994. People swarming into the kingdom and the church growing by leaps and bounds, planting daughter churches in other communities. Uh, I, they just would go off and do it, and sometimes we'd hear about it two or three weeks later, a month later, say, oh, we have to take this teaching to the ch church in Ulantolkoi, which is Mongol for redhead. The church in Redhead? What? We don't have a church in Redhead. Oh, we forgot to tell you. And they just plant churches. They didn't need permission to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Ever think about that? Nobody needs permission to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. That's above your pastor's pay grade. When Jesus is given a command, you just obey him. You don't have to go and trot over to somebody else and say, is it okay to obey Jesus? No, he's the Lord. That means something. So these Mongols had permission to plant new churches, and they did it, and they ran with it. And when I met, I went into a bathroom at a train station in the middle of nowhere, and it was a men's room, but there was a lady in there sitting at a table selling toilet paper. And that kind of freaked me out. I'm an American. It would freak most of you out. Uh, and, but she, uh, <laughs> I was trying to walk past her and not pay any attention to the fact that it was a woman. And she goes, come here! I go, oh my gosh, this is turning into a nightmare. So I went over to the table. She goes, are you... Are you that guy who used to live in Erdnet? This is in a trip back to Mongolia after we had left. And I said, uh, yeah. And she goes, you planted the church that planted the church that planted my church. This is so exciting. I'm like meeting my grandfather in the faith. And she went on and on about it. I'm standing in the restroom going, okay, I'll never appreciate this as much as God wants me to because I'm so freaked out about talking to someone in the men's room. That's my culture, you know. But I thought that's when you know it's a movement, when you ran, run into random old women in the men's room <laughs> who know how they're related to this movement of churches planting churches. Well, we um, had a baby. Uh, Louise had a baby in our apartment on November 2nd of 1994. And Jedediah Patrick Hogan was the first foreign baby ever born in the history of the city of Erdnet. So it was on the news. It was on television. It was on radio. It was in the newspaper. It was big news in the country. And everybody was really excited. The church was super excited. Our kids were really excited. These are his three sisters welcoming him into the world. And uh, <laughs> you know, so it was super cold in Mongolia, by the way. This is in November. It was already down to negative 15. And our apartment was on the ground floor, so it was really cold because of the way they heat the apartments. If you live on the top floor, you actually have to keep windows open. It's so hot because the radiators will burn you if you touch them. And on the bottom floor, our children used to rub their cheeks against the radiator to try and feel the faint warmth from it. So it's just the heat rises and the bottom radiators were terrible. Anyway, it was so cold in our apartment, but Alice, the one in front here, insisted on wearing her bathing suit. She loved her bathing suit. And so she would wear her bathing suit in the winter in the house, and it would freak Mongolians out. <laughs> they dress by the calendar. You know, they ch they'll change their hat. hat. It could be 95 outside, but if it gets to a certain day in September, they put on this big fur hat. It's like, why are you wearing that? Well, it's, you know, September 20th. <laughs> what? So they dressed by the calendar. So they'd come in and see Alice in this bathing suit and run into our room, 
This is very Mongolian. They feel like they can go anywhere. They run into our room, grab the comforter off the bed, and chase her around the apartment until they caught her and wrapped her up because she was not supposed to look that cold. Anyway, so um, with Jedediah's arrival in our life, um, we went through big changes. We didn't know how big the changes were going to be. Uh, that was also uh, presaged big changes for the church. Um, and there he is. <laughs> That's when he learned to smile. We took that picture. Uh, history has shown that throughout the ages, whenever the kingdom advanced, someone first had to pay a terrible price. And we were just about to discover how high the price would be for seeing the kingdom advance in outer Mongolia. Satan doesn't give up territory without a fight. In fact, in our school of frontier missions, the training we did before we went to the field, I remember one of our school leaders one day made a real point, had us all write it down. He said, uh, planting a church is an act of war. So get ready to fight. And you know, at the time, you're like, yeah, yeah, I mean, we had a whole week on martyrdom. And when we were packing, I didn't take those notes. It's like, yeah, it could happen, but why am I gonna drag around notes about martyrdom? I mean, if it happens, I won't have time to study for it, right? So I just, I didn't take those notes. Later, when events overtook us, we were thinking all three of us who had been through that training were all kicking ourselves for not having our notes from that week on martyrdom and suffering. Because that's part, if you read the New Testament, Paul says that's a mark of an apostle. Apostles suffer. And there's always suffering involved in launching a church planning movement. Well, um, I'm going to finish this story uh, tomorrow, actually tomorrow evening. We're going to leave you hanging, sorry. Uh, but I wanted to tell you, we have a table in the back, and when you come to something like this, I've always felt, when I, I came to missions really through a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, one of the neatest things was so the people who would come to teach us, that would come week after week, different teachers every week, would have resource tables, and they'd have things I could take home because I'd had this tremendous experience that night hearing them but a book that I could read later something I could listen to later is what cemented it in gave me time to think about it it didn't wasn't just this blur of that was really super inspiring do you remember what he said not really uh, so uh, we have a resource table back there and I just want to tell you just about two things right now I've written a book that's the whole story you're getting the really really cut down version two half hour segments right uh, the book in audio is seven hours. So I know the story takes seven hours to tell because I've read the book out loud uh, in the audiobook. So this book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub, uh, is an incredible story of what God did in outer Mongolia in planting his church there. It's the birth of a Mongolian church planting movement. It comes with a guarantee. It's guaranteed to make you laugh out loud, perhaps embarrassing you if you're reading it in Starbucks or on an airplane or something, and Make tears come to your eyes and roll down your cheeks. If both of these things don't happen to you while you're reading There's a Sheep in My Bathtub, I will cheerfully refund your money and you can keep the book. So here's the deal. If you know you're really hard-hearted, this is a great chance to scam a free book off a missionary who lives completely on support. It's $14, the audiobook's $10, you can download it from Audible or all over online, it's at our website at 4dmm.org, uh, you can get it all over. 
And um, it is a really good read. I just, uh, Ralph Winter said he liked it better than the Bible. No, he didn't say that. I just made that up. But anyway, he really, really liked it. Okay, not bad, the sheep says. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out now, there's a lot more on the table. There's like four books and there's all sorts of, uh, there's me telling the whole Mongolia story on um, video so you could get that. There's lots of things over there you could check out. But my wife is an artist and she, she made the shirt I'm wearing. See, it's a globe, right? You were thinking, well, for a globe, that's pretty svelte. I mean, he's kind of thin for a globe. That's why I wear it, it's strangely slimming. Okay, you're used to round globes and I'm a little more rounded than I'd like, but hey, for a globe, I'm doing good. So anyway, uh, Louise is an artist and she makes these cards, handmade greeting cards. And uh, each one, they're empty on the inside, sentiments not included, but they come with an envelope, they're ready to mail, the envelope's made out of a world map, and they're amazing. Each one's different. You can hang them on the wall. We know a lot of people who've actually framed them or put them on their mantles or whatever and display them. You can send them to a friend. You can write in them, happy birthday, happy Hanukkah, whatever. You know, you can write in whatever you want. And every penny from this goes to finance Louise's ministry of training indigenous traditional birth attendants in African villages, South American villages, uh, Azerbaijan next month. We're going to Azerbaijan in December. Um, all over the world, she's gathering women who help women have babies. Most of them have learned everything they know from their grannies. They've had no formal training at all. She's not looking for the ones with formal training. She wants to gather those on the front lines of infant and maternal mortality and hear from them, find out what they know, and then build on what they have, not introducing anything from the West. She's not going to take over a box of cord clamps in little sterile containers because when they run out, then they feel disempowered. We can't do it with what we have. Instead, it's like, you got string here? Oh yeah, we got string. We'll boil it. Then you got a cord clamp. You know, that's all you need. This kind of thing. And it's the most amazing process because they fall in love with her. Plus she has real, she's not a 20-something who's never had a man, right? She's had five babies. And so they're like, oh, okay, we'll learn from you. They don't want teenagers coming over teaching them how to have babies. Uh, so it's the most amazing thing. Well, she pays for all the airfare, for lunches for these women during the whole week-long teaching. All of this comes from cards she makes by hand. It's a chance for you to participate in saving the lives of mommies and babies in Africa. And that's 30 minutes, so back to you. 